destino para ti lo que viniera de ti. Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast for August 24th, 2014. I'm Nelson DeWitt. We're coming to you live from the World Fellowship Center in Albany, New Hampshire. And my guest today is Rob McAndrews, my good friend who I've uh, known for several years now and who has done some work in El Salvador, which we will be talking about in the podcast. Rob, thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. I guess the best place to start, you know, we, we talked a little bit beforehand. You've done so much in El Salvador. And uh, rather than talk about one particular event or uh, thing that you've done, why don't we start and just could you give us a brief overview of your involvement with the country and, and what you've, the work you've done there? Um, fantastic. That's a good way to begin. In the 1980s, um, there were tens of thousands of Salvadorans and Guatemalans who were fleeing Central America uh, for safety uh, due to the, uh, the wars. And uh, many of them uh, ended up uh, kind of surprisingly on Long Island. And I was teaching at C.W. Post College uh, Sociology, and I was working with some people in uh, the city of Hempstead, Long Island, and we were helping the homeless uh, there at that time. Um, and one day, a, a, a nun, a Roman Catholic nun, uh, came to us and said, you know, there are many Salvadorans here that could possibly use our help uh, in terms of housing and legal assistance. Uh, let's see what we can do. And so we developed, um, we, we did some fundraising, and out of that we created um, uh, the Oscar Romero House, which we were able to then house um, many families of Salvadorans. So that was my beginning on Long Island in the 1980s with the refugees from the war. Uh, I also participated in many demonstrations in Washington, D.C., uh, trying to oppose the U.S. funding to the uh, government and military of El Salvador. I then moved to Massachusetts in 1992, and... In 1995, my family, we moved to Beverly, Massachusetts, and I just happened to move across the street from a woman named Nelda Quigley. Well, Nelda and a good friend of hers uh, were starting to get involved in helping a healthcare organization uh, in Santa Ana, El Salvador, Mm -hmm. and the name of the organization is the Salvadoran Association for Rural Health. It goes by the acronym ASAPROSAR. So in 1995, uh, a group of us established a 501c uh, nonprofit corporation solely for the purpose of fundraising to help Asaprosar. Well, a few years later, uh, I made my first trip to El Salvador. It was 1998, and I met with uh, Dr. Vicky Guzman, the director and founder of Asaprosar. And a few years after that, uh, I was teaching at Salem State University at the time, I thought, well, why don't I start taking students down to work with this organization during their spring break? Well, by 2006, I had already taken about five trips. And one of the students who uh, went on, was planning on coming down with me, uh, March of 2006, came to my office about two weeks before we were to leave 
And uh, her name is uh, Suzanne Burgess Norton. And she asked for my assistance in finding her birth family. And so uh, she left my office, and I immediately turned on my computer and uh, started plugging in some search words into Google. And I remember putting in the word missing, because I don't think the word disappeared was on my radar in terms of my vocabulary. And, but fortunately, um, the, the name of the uh, group, the activist group Probuscada, came up. And so uh, I emailed them and said, I told them who I was. I told them that I had um, a student, a graduate student of social work who was coming with me, and uh, could we possibly uh, meet with one of their staff members. And so, uh, outside of the Metropolitan Cathedral, uh, on a day that was uh, packed with thousands of people who were who were there to uh, attend the Mass in honor of uh, Monsignor Romero, and also um, the I think it was the third anniversary Mass for Father John Cortina was uh, being celebrated downstairs in the crypt where Father John Cortina and Romero are both uh, buried. And so uh, we met with the um, staffer from um, Probuscada, and he one of the things he did was to produce this little uh, DNA kit, and he asked Suzanne if uh, she wouldn't mind that if they took a sample uh, of her saliva for the, for the DNA, and so she did that. Um, and she gave some other information. Well, a few months from that time, uh, Suzanne received uh, a call from Pabuskita saying that they were pretty sure that they might have found her family uh, living up in the Morazan uh, area. And indeed, the DNA seemed to verify and support uh, that conclusion. The following March, in March 2007, then I accompanied Suzanne uh, back to El Salvador, and we went up to the area called uh, the town of Cacocopera, I love mm-hmm. saying that name, uh, in Morazan, and um, we spent uh, some days with her um, birth family. Yeah, that must have been an amazing experience. Um, I'll tell you this, uh, I, was, I was speechless when uh, I was introduced to her uh, birth mother and father and brothers and sisters. Um, it took me many minutes to compose myself. I was, I was unprepared for uh, the emotion of it all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've I've said something similar uh, when I'm presenting the film and people ask me about that first reunion. You know, I don't remember much of it because it was so overwhelming. You know, it's all. It, I, I've heard that in traumatic situation, your brain will block out, uh, you know, certain memories, and this was similar to that. Where I can remember walking out and the initial, you know, hug from my father and little sister, and after that, I don't remember a thing until I'm into the, in the car, maybe half an hour later, you know, off to the hotel, and it's just uh, so overwhelming that it, it, you know, you you can't really process it at the time. When when you had your reunion, 
Uh, were there members of the, the media and press there? No, I think we had the, the option to, but my parents opted not to. So, you know, it, it's, I was, one of the comments I was going to make is it's actually very uh, strange for, you know, outsiders to be part of that reunion, I feel like, that, you know, besides the press or media. But for the most part, it is, you know, the two families meeting. So what was that like to be sort of an observer of this this scene unfolding there was preparations uh in the weeks uh prior to us uh flying down to el salvador positions for human rights was very involved in helping with the uh organizing of this reunion and um, i believe it was uh, probably susanna serkin one of the uh directors of physicians for human rights uh based in cambridge who um Either she contacted the press about it or someone in front of Probuskita did. Uh, because the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and several Salvadoran uh, media outlets were present for this reunion. Suzanne wanted, uh, or I should say she consented when she was asked if it was okay for the press uh, to come with us. And she felt... And it just surprised me so much, but it was very much a, refl- a reflection of Suzanne's spirit that she thought that this could help uh, spread the news about the work of Probuskita, and indeed it did. Uh, so while I was standing there mm-hmm. uh, watching and witnessing this reunion as she was first hugged by her mother and then by her father, who, as he approached her, immediately he whispered uh, to her, uh, please forgive me. And he was referring to the day of the kidnapping. But while that intimate moment was happening, you could hear all the clicking of the cameras and the shuffling of people trying to get a good photo shot and so forth. Mm. Remarkably... um, I don't think it was the very next day, but the day after that, uh, there was the photograph on the front page of the Boston Globe of Suzanne being embraced by her parents. Um, And the New York Times uh, had a very long piece on it as well. And those stories were very, very helpful in uh, spreading the word. Yeah. I I remember reading that article in the Boston Globe, and it, it came at a time... Uh, where I had been reunited for about 10 years, because I was reunited in 1997. And throughout those 10 years, I felt a lot of the times like I was alone, that there were, you know, that there was no one else that had been through this. So I remember very clearly seeing the front page of the Boston Globe and thinking, oh my God, there's one other person out there like me. And, you know, it, it, it was just amazing to read about her story and there are so many um, correlations and, and part of that has to do with the war and the time period. But it was it was great to, uh, to read that article and then later to get to know her and you. And I just wanted to, to jump back because you, you made a great point about the father and what he said to Suzanne, you know, I'm sorry. And there's a lot of this... Um, almost survivor's guilt, I guess. I don't know if that's the correct term, but a lot of the families feel 
responsible for the loss of their ch- their child. And in many of these cases, such as Suzanne's, the children were taken at gunpoint. The parents really didn't have a choice, and yet they feel responsible as if they should have done more. And that's something that they have to live with for many years afterwards. I had a chance to talk at length with him, fortunately with an interpreter at hand, uh, for many, many hours the following day, and he poured out uh, his memory of every second of that afternoon when the soldiers' unit came in to where they were staying. Um, Suzanne was born in a village that was just next door to El Mozote, and so um, their parents knew uh, of the massacre um, all those villages were fleeing from one place to another. And so when those soldiers came in, uh, their parents knew what, what could have happened, that the entire family could have been wiped out uh, if the father did not uh, consent. He really didn't have any choice but to mm-hmm. consent. And that Suzanne, who was lying in a hammock, uh, was then turned over to the, uh, to the soldiers. Yeah. Talk about impossible decisions. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. But as I say, because of the uh, the press coverage, um, the Suzanne story uh, not only helped you, but uh, many other individuals then came forward and approached uh, Physicians for Human Rights or myself or directly contact, contacted Probuscada and uh, were, were ready then to embark on, on their searches. I would say that uh, I've met with many Salvadoran Americans uh, who were born around the time of the Civil War who would contact me, and some I was able to then uh, send on to Probuscada, and their search would continue. Uh, but others, um, they, they only wanted to know what Probuscada did, uh, they wanted to know a little bit more about Suzanne's story, um, but they felt that they weren't ready to do the search. I remember one young lady I spent a whole afternoon with, and after I was done uh, giving her some information and so forth, she said, well, maybe sometime in the future, but um, not now. And I said, well, that's fine. You know, uh, the resources are there. You know about them. And then she said, well, you know, I just don't want to hurt my adoptive parents. I don't want them to feel bad that I'm somehow seeking out my biological family. And I said, well, I understand that. So every single case is is very unique. There was a young man who contacted me, and um, I didn't hear again from him for two years. And then he contacted me again, and he said, well, I'm ready. Uh, What is this about the DNA? How how does that work? So I said, well, I happen to have one of the kits, so why don't we meet in two weeks? And uh, tragically, he passed away uh, a week after. So I wasn't able to, uh, to meet with him. Yeah. It's it's such a difficult situation on both sides because, you know, as we as we talked about, you have the parents who feel this guilt and longing to know where their 
loved ones are. And then on the other side, you have adoptees who aren't always sure that they want to find out the truth. And, you know, as the saying goes, ignorance is bliss. And I think in this situation, sometimes when you open, when you start going down that rabbit hole, it, it can be extremely difficult. And I've seen Suzanne and some of my other friends struggle, and myself included, struggle with not just the fact that we were adopted, you have all of those, but the way that we were separated from our families. Yes. You know, and that if we had just been given up for adoption, then the whole thing would have been maybe a little bit easier to, to reconcile when you're older. But the fact that you were stolen from your parents or uh, separated in war or, uh, you know, that, that family members died in the war, that adds a whole other dimension to it. I think it does, and I, and I appreciate your, your perspective, and, and I understand that it's one of those situations of life that's nearly impossible to put into words mm. what that extra layer of the context of, of it all, what that means uh, psychologically. Um, for me, it's been uh, such uh, an important part of my, my life, and my view of it is that it's such a privilege for me to play any kind of role in helping uh, to bring people to the resources of uh, Probuscada. The, the reunion that, that you and I had attended in March of, uh, I think it was March or April of 2011, was one of the most remarkable weeks of my life, to be with so many Salvadoran, Salvadorans who were uh, disappeared, uh, and then together with yourself and two other Salvadoran Americans, mm. to be witness to their frank and open discussions about their own stories and their lives, the complexities, and every single one mm. was so different. Well, why don't we, uh, we'll just give a little bit of context here. And uh, the day that you're talking about is the Day of the Disappeared, which was held in 2011 uh, on March 29th. And that was actually the very start of our film. John, uh, John Younger and I, we flew down to El Salvador and we were able, we spent the whole week there shooting for the film. So all of whatever you see in the film uh, was primarily shot during the, during that week. And uh, Rob, you were there and we had a couple other American disappeared adoptees uh, down there as well. And it was just an amazing week and event to, uh, you know, listen to the president of El Salvador. And we got to, we were invited to a, a presidential breakfast where he personally apologized for a lot of what happened during the war. And, you know, we were in the stadium with 20,000 uh, school children. It was just a, an incredible experience overall. Yeah. One of the uh, remarkable experiences was to sit with so many Salvadorans uh, who were disappeared, who were being asked by the staff members of uh, ProBuscada, what, what does reparations mean to you? What does restoration mean to you? Uh, what do you want the country or the government to do? And clearly, day after day, people spoke of the importance of of truth, the importance of of finding 
out more information, more details about what did occur during the war and the uh, the abductions and so forth that happened. And so beyond asking for monetary reparations or reparations in terms of education or health care, all those things definitely were spoken about, but it was uh, wanting to know the truth about what occurred and also being able to preserve their memories uh, so that the Salvadoran society, historians and professionals uh, would be able to um, have access to their to their stories, to their memories uh, for for the future. And so um, I've, I found those discussions to be really remarkable. And that concludes this week's episode of Inside the Journey. Tune in next week to hear the conclusion of our interview with Rob McAndrews. See you next time.